there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. This episode features descriptions of gun violence, natural disaster, and extreme trauma that some people may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised, especially for children under 13. 25-year-old Jan Balsrud crouched behind a boulder, clutching a pistol encrusted with ice. He was soaked to the bone, shivering violently in the Arctic air. But he didn't dare move. He heard Nazi sailors drawing closer. It was March 30th, 1943, Jan was one of 12 Norwegians specially chosen to execute a top-secret sabotage mission in his homeland, which was occupied by Nazis. They had sailed into a fjord north of the Arctic Circle the day before and begun making preparations. But their plans were derailed when they saw a German warship entering the harbor. Jan and his companions blew up their own boat and swam through the icy water to escape. Jan lost his boot in the turmoil, but he managed to churn through the 100 yards between the sinking boat and the shore. He hobbled across the rocky beach with one bare foot until he reached a large boulder. Once safely hidden behind it, Jan looked back at his companions. One was lying a few yards away, dead from a bullet wound to the head. Two others lay on the rocks nearby, unmoving. He called to them, but they didn't respond. What should he do? He wanted desperately to help his companions, but he couldn't tell if they were alive. And if he left his hiding place to check, he could be shot too. He hesitated for a moment, searching frantically for a plan. Then the Nazis spotted him. Jan's heart stopped. He had no food, no map, and no protection from the Arctic elements. He also had no choice but to run for his life. Welcome to Survival, a podcast original. I'm your host, Irma Blanco. And I'm Tim Johnson. It's been an exciting journey, but this is our last episode before we go on hiatus. 
After venturing from the Arctic Circle to the Galeris Volcano to the Donner Pass, we're taking a break to catch our breath. We truly appreciate the loyal listeners who have stuck with us. We couldn't have made it this far without you. Every review, comment, and suggestion has made a difference in our show. On behalf of everyone at ParCast, thank you for your support. Even though we're not releasing any new episodes, all previous episodes of Survival will still be available for free on Spotify or anywhere you listen to podcasts. And make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network for updates on our full slate of shows. This week, we've got an incredible one-part episode on Jan Balsrud, a 25-year-old leader in the Norwegian resistance against the Nazis. We'll see how Jan endured frostbite, gangrene, snow blindness, and starvation while evading capture after his mission was compromised. Finally, we'll explore how he escaped a devastating end with the help of dozens of villagers who risked their lives to save him. World War II began on September 1st, 1939, when Nazi-led Germany invaded the sovereign nation of Poland. Over the next several months, the Germans seized one country after another, engaging in an all-out land grab. On April 9, 1940, the Nazis blasted their way into Norway, a Scandinavian country that extends to about 400 miles north of the Arctic Circle. After a fierce invasion, the Germans imposed a new pro-fascist regime. Norwegians who refused to accept the puppet government formed a resistance movement, many of whose members slipped out of the country to learn how to fight the Nazis abroad. Jan Balsrud was among them. He was 22 years old and fresh out of cartography school when the war began. He kicked off his career as a commando, drawing maps of German military installations in Norway and sneaking them across the border to neutral Sweden. Eventually, he was caught and imprisoned. Upon his release, he made his way around the world to the Shetland Islands, a secret training ground for Norwegian expats in the craft of sabotage. According to international humanitarian law, sabotage refers to the action taken to destroy or damage material, works, or installations which add to the efficiency of the enemy's armed forces. In Norway, such small-scale missions were critical to dislodging German forces, given the country's natural barrier of islands, fjords, and around six months of snow. Jan's educational background was useful on sabotage operations, but he was also uniquely suited for them based on his personality. He was adventurous, high-spirited, and incredibly tough. He was also fiercely loyal towards his people. These traits, along with his unfailing optimism, made Jan a standout among his fellow resistors. And in early 1943, the 25-year-old was chosen as one of four operatives on a top-secret mission called Operation Martin. The mission's objective was to establish a training ground in a remote part of Norway to teach locals the art of sabotage. The men were also tasked with destroying a German military airfield from which the Nazis were conducting air raids and reconnaissance. Jan was excited about the mission, partly because he wanted to free his homeland, and also because one of his close friends was going too. 
25-year-old Per Blindheim, an avid outdoorsman whom Jan had first met in Sweden, was also eager to have a hand in liberating Norway. The two men shared a love of adventure and their people. They were also about to share one of the most harrowing experiences of their lives. The four-man team left the Shetland Islands on March 24, 1943, along with a captain and seven crewmen. They were on a 75-foot single-engine ship called the Brotholm, which was laden with radio gear and explosives. On March 29th, they reached their destination, an icy inlet called Toftefjord, about 300 miles north of the Arctic Circle. Jan looked out onto the still waters of the tiny fjord. There was no one in sight. Confident that his team was safe, he cheerfully joined Purr and the others for dinner. He spent the rest of the night checking their weapons and instruments to make sure all was prepared. The next morning, the team heard Nazi warplanes droning overhead. They decided to lie low until the coast was clear. Around noon, the action quieted down, convincing Jan and his companions that they hadn't been spotted. They went on about their preparations, but a couple of hours later, a shout went up from the lookout. A German warship had been spotted entering the fjord. There was no way out. With only seconds to respond, the captain ordered the men to abandon ship. He and the crew piled into a dinghy and rowed desperately for shore as the Germans fired cannons overhead. Meanwhile, Jan, Purr, and their two fellow saboteurs rushed down to the hold. They lit a five-minute fuse and threw all their documents and radio equipment into a pile on top of it. Then they grabbed their pistols and clambered into the remaining lifeboat. They waited with their oars in the water. Jan could hear the Nazi warship approaching. Five minutes to go on the fuse. Four. Three. When there were only two minutes left, Jan and his colleagues shoved off. The Nazis spotted them within seconds. They pelted the lifeboats with machine guns. Somehow, neither Jan nor his companions were hurt. But the holes in the craft caused it to start taking on water. With the Germans bearing down on them and their boat sinking, Jan and Purr exchanged a few last words. They'd had a good run together. Now it looked like they were reaching the end of the line. But just as they were preparing to make a jump for it... Eight tons of explosives shattered the Brotholm, sending debris flying in all directions. Jan and his colleagues dove into the icy water, a massive wave crashed onto the lifeboat behind them. Jan felt a tug at his right leg and realized with the shock that his boot was caught in the wreckage. With lightning reflexes, he kicked free just as the boat swirled to the bottom of the fjord. Then he swam with all his strength toward the rocky shore. It was only about 100 yards from the boat, but under the circumstances, it probably felt like 100 miles. The water was extremely cold and dotted with ice flows that blocked Jan's path. Every second his arms emerged into the open air, the water on his uniform froze, weighing him further down. And as he grew heavier, it became increasingly difficult to maintain speed. Finally, Jan dragged himself up onto the shore of the fjord. His friend Purr was right behind him. 
As the two men made their way to shelter in the nearby cliffs, Jan heard a crack. He looked back. Purr was splayed out on the rocks, a gunshot wound in the back of his head. Jan was devastated. But with bullets flying and the Nazis hot on his heels, he had no time to stop and mourn. He hobbled quickly to a hiding place behind a nearby rock, his uniform crackling as the salt water in the fabric froze. Once safe behind the boulder, Jan looked back again. He saw Purr's body at the shoreline in a pool of blood. He also saw two more of his companions lying motionless a few yards away. He called to them to follow him, but neither moved. Jan couldn't tell if they were dead, unconscious, or just too cold to speak. He tried frantically to think of the best way to help them, but then... He was spotted. A detachment of four Nazi soldiers were marching through the snow. They would reach him in minutes. But before they did, they would have to descend behind a low ridge, which would temporarily block him from their view. Realizing that moment was his only chance, Jan waited until the Nazis disappeared behind the natural barrier and then ran toward them. He crouched out of sight with his pistol, which had miraculously stayed with him when he swam to shore. The chamber was full. If he was quick enough, he might be able to kill all four of them. Jan heard the Germans approach. He readied his weapon, listening carefully to determine their location. When at last they were in range, he raised up from his hiding place to shoot. Nothing happened. With a shock, Jan realized that water had frozen in the pistol. His fingers wet and throbbing from the cold, he released the magazine, yanked out the first two bullets, and jammed it back into place. He took aim once again. This time, it worked. A bullet ripped through one of the oncoming soldiers. He crumpled to the ground, dead. Jan shot again, wounding a second soldier. The other two fell back in alarm. For the first time since the Nazis had entered the fjord that morning, Jan breathed a quick sigh of relief. Then he muzzled his gun and climbed into a gully that hid him from the warship's view. The next few hours were touch and go for the saboteur. Once he had a moment to catch his breath, he felt a stabbing pain in his bare foot. He looked down to find that his right big toe had been shot off. This made his situation critical, as he needed to dress the wound but had nothing to do it with. It also meant that the Nazis would easily be able to track him by following the red footprints in the snow. Jan had to get help. Hoping to throw the Germans off his trail, he sneaked back down to the fjord and swam across it, this time to an islet almost 300 yards away. He dragged himself, shivering and exhausted, to a tiny homestead near the water and asked the Norwegian family there for help. The lady of the house, Fru Idrupsen, looked him over with concern. She suspected Jan was connected to the explosions and gunfire she'd heard in the fjord a few hours ago. That meant the Nazis were looking for him. And if they found him here, they'd kill everyone in the house. But Fru Idrupsen could tell that Jan was in desperate need of assistance. So she decided to do everything in her power to save him. Like many who live in inhospitable environments, Fru Idrupsen knew exactly how to combat the elements. First, she had her visitor remove his wet clothing and gave him some warm wool garments to put on while his own dried by the fire. 
She gave him something to eat and drink. Then she rubbed his feet and legs to get the circulation going and wrapped his injured toe in bandages. Finally, she found a new boot to replace the one he'd lost during his flight. Once Jan was warm and recovered, the Adrupsen family gathered round to discuss what he should do now. The country was swarming with Nazis and Norwegians who sympathized with them. He needed to flee from the area as quickly as he could. Fru Idrupsen's son, Peterson, advised Jan to make his way to the mainland. Here in the far northern islands of Norway, communities were small and a stranger would be noticed immediately. But if Jan could reach the more populous regions further south, he could blend in and make his way to the neutral nation of Sweden. Jan was torn. On one hand, he knew the Idrupsens were right, but he was also still thinking about his companions from the home and trying to come up with a way to save them. Sadly, young Peterson informed him that there was no hope for that. The teen had gone down to the beach after the gunfire settled. He'd found some debris from the explosion and a discarded ammunition belt, but the ship was gone, and there was no sign of Jan's companions, living or dead. This was devastating news for Jan, but at least it helped him make up his mind. With no one to turn back for, he could set his sights firmly on the road ahead. So at one in the morning, less than 12 hours after the Brotholm was attacked, Jan Balsrud left the Idrupsens, preparing to face the rest of his journey alone. Coming up, we'll see how a run-in with the Nazis led Jan to get caught in an avalanche, leaving him blind and stranded in the mountains. Now back to the story. On March 30th, 1943, Jan Balsrud and his companions on the Brotholm were attacked by a Nazi warship in Norwegian waters. After swimming to safety, Jan took shelter in the home of the Idrupsens, where he learned that the others had all been either killed or captured. Hunted by the Nazis, he had no choice but to make his way to neutral Sweden on foot, wounded and alone. For the next several days, Jan pressed eastward, stopping at the homes of Norwegian resistors recommended by the Adrupsens and others he met along the way. He was keenly aware that each interaction posed a risk to himself and those who helped him, but in the piercing cold of the Arctic spring, he had no choice. He relied heavily on the goodwill of his people, who offered him food, shelter, and warmth when he needed it most. During his travels, Jan heard more news of his companions. The whole countryside was abuzz with the story of the Norwegian men who'd been attacked by the Nazis in Toftefjord. Only one had been killed in the attack, Jan's friend, Per. The others had been taken prisoner. They'd been transported to the county seat of Trumsa, where they were summarily executed. This knowledge was a profoundly heavy burden for Jan, Yet it also spurred him to fight harder for his own survival. He now knew what would happen if he were taken prisoner. And he was determined not to let that happen. On April 3rd, 1943, after four days and about 50 miles of hiking through the snowy mountains, Jan reached the house of a well-known resistor named Einar Sorensen. Einar was a fisherman, other resistors had suggested he could use his boat to ferry Jan to the mainland. 
However, the channel between his house and the southern landmass was packed with German patrol boats. The best he could do was equip Jan with a pair of skis and a recommendation for someone else who might help him along the way. Jan gratefully accepted Einar's offer. Skiing across the snow was much faster and easier than hiking through it. And as Jan set off again, he felt confident that he would soon reach his destination. However, after several hours of gliding across the snow, Jan ran into a deadly obstacle. A town lay ahead, and dozens of Nazi soldiers were milling around in his path. Jan was forced to take a detour, climbing high into the mountains and attempting to navigate by keeping an eye on a fjord far below. Unfortunately, that soon became impossible. Around 11 in the morning, after he had skied about 20 miles, the weather changed. The sky darkened, snow began to fall. Thick, heavy flakes whipped around in the gusting wind. Not only could Jan no longer see the fjord down below, he couldn't see more than a few yards in front of his face. There's a saying that if you stop moving in a blizzard, you'll never move again. Jan took this to heart and kept inching forward, even as the snow began to blind him. He was freezing cold. The icy wind scoured his face. Soon, his sense of direction faded. He lost track of time and couldn't tell if it was day or night. Then, over the howl of the wind, he heard something. A low rumble, followed by a deafening crack. Jan tumbled into an abyss of snow and rock cascading down the mountain. It was an avalanche. Caught in the midst of the thundering snowslide, there was nothing he could do but hold his breath as his body hurtled toward the valley floor. According to the Solomon Mountain Academy, there are several steps one can take to increase the chances of surviving an avalanche. One is to sidestep to avoid getting caught in the flow of debris. Another is to stretch out and swim against the current to get on top of the descending mass. Unfortunately, Jan had no time to attempt either of these tactics. He blacked out during the onslaught and only came to once the catastrophe had subsided. His survival was a stroke of pure luck, but at the moment it didn't seem especially fortuitous. He'd lost one of his skis and broken the other. His poles were gone, as was the food he'd been given to last the journey. Far worse, Jan had a concussion, which prevented him from forming coherent thoughts. He didn't know where he was or how he got there. But somehow he knew he had to keep moving. He staggered to his feet and slogged aimlessly forward in the ski boots Einar had given him. Hours stretched into days. After a while, the sun came out again, producing a reflective glare off the snow. The blazing white light seared his retinas, causing him to go temporarily blind. Jan's chances of surviving in the Arctic without food, sight, or direction were virtually zero. But miraculously, on April 8th, after three days of wandering, he heard people talking near a cluster of buildings up ahead. It was a village. And that meant food. Ravenously hungry, 
Jan lurched toward the structure nearest him. He no longer cared if the people inside were friends or foes. He heard cries of astonishment as he barged in and lunged for the table. His hands landed on scraps of fish and potatoes. He stuffed them into his mouth and then collapsed on the floor, unconscious. Unknown to Jan, he had luckily stumbled into one of the safest refuges in the area. It was the home of Hanna Pedersen, sister to Marius Grunvold. Marius was the leader of the resistance in this town, the fishing village of Furuflatten, and he lived just a few yards away. Hanna stared at the man on her floor in shock for a moment. Then she shouted at her son to go find her brother. Moments later, the boy returned with Marius. The siblings exchanged a few words of explanation, then sprang into action. Just like Fru Idrupsen, Hanna and Marius knew exactly how to care for someone who'd been ravaged by the cold. But they'd never seen a man in such horrifying condition. Jan's eyes were practically sealed shut due to the pain from his retina burn. His legs were cased in large blocks of ice. He was so exhausted that he hadn't even been able to swallow the food in his mouth before passing out. Nevertheless, the family quickly went to work. First, they chipped the ice off Jan's legs. His boots were frozen to his feet, so they had to be cut away in strips. Then, upon peeling off his socks, Hanna and Marius found that Jan's feet were mottled blue, white, and black. This was clear evidence that he was suffering from severe frostbite, a condition in which skin and the underlying tissues are frozen. Frostbite often leads to long-term numbness and stiffness in the joints. Worse, it may lead to gangrene, an extremely serious condition that often requires amputation. According to Base Medical Outdoor Safety, the first step in dealing with frostbite is to determine whether there's a possibility of refreezing. If not, the affected area should be thawed by submerging it in water between 98.6 and 102.2 degrees Fahrenheit. In other words, not hot, but lukewarm. Once the tissue is safely thawed, it should be air dried to prevent further damage. The affected area should then be lightly wrapped and elevated to reduce pain and swelling. In Jan's case, this process was complicated by the gunshot wound on his right toe. According to survivalist Dr. James Hubbard, the most important step to treating a gunshot wound is applying pressure to stop the bleeding. Ironically, the fact that Jan's foot was frozen had done the trick, but once it was thawed, it needed to be tightly wrapped. Doing so, however, could cause further damage to the frostbitten tissue. As Marius, Hanna, and her children worked to care for Jan as best they could, he slowly regained consciousness. Through muttered half-phrases, he managed to explain that he was the last surviving man from the Brotholm. Marius was stunned. He'd heard about the battle at Toftefjord, but he'd assumed that the twelfth man on the mission was either captured or killed. How was it possible that Jan had not only escaped the Nazis, but survived alone in the wilderness for nine days? They had to find a way to save him. But how? Marius and Hanna debated this for a moment. 
Like many towns in the area, Fuhruflaten was swarming with German soldiers. They could barge in and find Jan at any minute. Yet he was obviously in dire need of rest and medical attention. There was no way he could go on or even be moved. Finally, the siblings decided to take the risk of letting Jan stay with them. They moved him to a warm, comfortable hideout in the loft of the family barn. For the next several days, they continued to care for him as Marius worked on a plan to help him escape. Jan was profoundly grateful to the family, and he grew to care for them as much as they did for him. But he was also keenly aware of the risk they were taking on his behalf. He needed to get well fast, to continue on his way, before his rescuers were caught. No matter how much he wielded, however, the condition of his feet did not improve. At last, on April 12th, Marius entered the loft in the middle of the night and told Jan he had a plan. With help from Hannah and another sister, as well as two trusted friends, Marius lowered Jan to the floor of the barn. He then wrapped Jan in wool blankets and strapped him onto a small sled. With the women supporting Jan's head, the men guided the sled silently through the forest and down to the rocky shore of the fjord. There, the women said farewell to their friend as the men hoisted Jan off the sled and into a fishing boat. They set sail for the opposite shore, splashing liquor on their clothes so that if anyone approached, they could pretend to be out on a drunken fishing trip. Once they reached the other side, Marius and his cohorts carried Jan into a tiny fishing cabin. They gave him a few days' supply of food, water, and alcohol, along with a small cooking stove and a knife. Then they said goodbye, promising to return in a couple of days. Marius assured Jan that he would be safe here, far from prying eyes, until they could return to take him on the next leg of the journey. At first, Jan was relatively happy with this new situation. Although the cabin was small, dark, and lonely, at least now he wasn't putting his friends at risk. He had warm, dry clothes and plenty of food. Maybe by the time Marius returned, he'd be able to walk again. As the days passed, however, Jan was forced to face the reality of his situation. His feet were not improving. In fact, they were getting far worse. The flesh on his toes was turning black. They smelled of rot and sent shooting pains through his body. As much as he hoped to deny it, eventually Jan had to admit that his feet were infected with gangrene. This was a devastating realization for the soldier. Not only is gangrene incredibly painful, but if left untreated, it can also be fatal. And in the middle of the wilderness, there's only one real treatment available. Jan put it off as long as he could. Then, one day, he realized he could wait no longer. On April 21st, nine days after he arrived in the hut, Jan took off his bandages. He picked up the knife that Marius had left him, poured some alcohol over his hands and in his mouth. Then he pressed the blade against the blackened flesh of his big toe and started cutting. Jan amputated two of his own toes that day, as well as several spots of diseased skin. The entire process took several hours. When it was over, he fell back onto his cot, unconscious. 
The following day, Marius and his friends returned at last. They were horrified to see Jan's condition, filthy, bloody, and smelling like a corpse. But he was still alive. And as he came to and realized his friends had returned, he lit up with a flicker of hope again. As Marius and his cohorts got Jan cleaned up, he explained the reasons for their lengthy absence. They had sailed to the remote village of Mandalin on the other side of the mountains. There, they found a team of people willing to help them. They'd arranged to carry Jan to a valley several hundred feet up the mountain. Men from Mandalin would meet them there and take over the rescue effort, transporting Jan across the flatlands to the Swedish border. It was a daring and dangerous plan, but after so many days of suffering alone in the hut, Jan was ready to risk it. The night of April 24th, Marius and his friends tied Jan to a sled, which they attached to their waists with ropes. Then they began the slow, strenuous process of hauling the injured man up the mountain. Often, this required the men to pull the sled over bumpy ground. Other times, they had to guide it through thickets, chopping at the brush with an axe. The worst moments for Jan, however, were when the grade was too steep for his friends to drag the sled. In those moments, two men had to climb up to a ledge and kneel down, while the others flipped Jan's sled upright and hoisted it into their hands. Initially, they did this with Jan right side up, but the blood rushing to his feet caused him unbearable pain, so he begged them to turn the sled over. This meant Jan had to be lifted up the wall of the gorge, hanging upside down. The pressure in his head was so great that he repeatedly passed out. After several hours of excruciating exertion, the men finally reached the meeting point. They were exhausted, trembling with fatigue, their faces pouring sweat. Jan was in anguish, Yet he cheered himself with the thought that a fresh crew would soon take over, giving his friends a chance to rest and get home safely. To pass the time while they waited for the next crew, the men told jokes and stories. Yet, as the minutes ticked by, a pall of worry settled over them. Where were the others? Marius had clearly established the meeting place and time. His friends from Mondolin were 100% trustworthy. What was causing the delay? The minutes stretched into hours, and still the second crew did not appear. Finally, Marius and his friends were forced to admit that they could wait no longer. They had to be back in Furuflaten by daybreak before anyone noticed they were gone. But what should they do with Jan in the meantime? They couldn't possibly risk taking him back down the mountain. The journey had been nearly impossible on the way up when they were fresh and strong. Now they were all exhausted. And even if the rescue team survived the rocky descent, in Jan's current state, he probably wouldn't. The only solution was to leave him here, as protected from the elements as possible. So they found a large, flat-sided rock that provided shelter from the wind and dug a hole in the snow beside it. Packing the snow tightly on all sides, they created a cave, somewhat like an igloo, and slid Jan inside it. They gave him all the food they had and promised that they would come back as soon as possible to check on him. 
Marius desperately hoped this would be unnecessary. Surely the men would arrive any moment now. And when they did, they would call out the code phrase, Hello, gentlemen, so Jan would know they were friends. This seemed as good a plan as any under the circumstances. Yet it was heartbreaking for Jan to hear the men's muffled voices say goodbye. In this frozen cave, he was protected from the wind, but he was in near total darkness and the pain in his feet and legs was unbearable. His only hope for survival was rescue, soon. Unfortunately for Jan, help was much farther away than he hoped. Peter Berigmo, the Mandalin man entrusted with finding skiers to come and meet Jan, had been caught by the Nazis and jailed for several days. As a result, he hadn't been able to fulfill his part of the plan. Thanks to a personal connection, Peter was now free and working frantically to find the right men for the next leg of the journey. But by the time he succeeded, it was too late. A blizzard blew into the area, ravaging the mountains and reducing visibility to zero. The men Peter Berigmo had found were unable to breach the storm for five full days. And during that time... Jan remained buried in his cave with only a small amount of food to sustain him. Once again, the Norwegian managed to do the seemingly impossible in order to survive. He rationed his food, consuming the bare minimum to keep himself breathing. He suffered what must have been intense pain and unbearable cold without attempting to dig himself out. Most incredibly and critically, as the days passed, Jan continued to hope. This, above all, was what kept him breathing. Clinical psychologist Dr. Joseph Novinsky discusses the critical importance of optimism in his article, Hope and Survival, The Power of Psychological Resilience. He writes, Research has shown that faced with high stress, people with resilient outlooks are less vulnerable to physical and emotional illness. But another way to look at resilience is that it is simply hope. Hope is powerful. Jan would need all the power in the world to get through this. He spent five days lying in a cramped snow cave without being able to move even to relieve himself. Finally, on April 30th, he heard a peculiar sound coming from the surface several feet above. Jan was so weak that he couldn't quite determine what it was at first, but eventually he realized someone, or something, was digging in the snow far above him. He waited for what seemed like hours for the excavator to break through. At last, he heard a muffled voice call out, Hello, gentlemen. It was the code phrase. Finally, after 120 hours of being buried alive, Jan was being rescued once again. He summoned all his strength to call back, Hello, gentlemen. His voice was barely more than a murmur, but the men heard it and doubled their speed. When they broke through at last, Jan felt fresh air on his cheeks for the first time in a week. He saw two men looking down on him with expressions of amazement. They could not believe that any man, much less one in Jan's condition, survived this long under four feet of snow. He would need that fortitude in the coming days more than he knew. His new rescuers explained that they were not the transport crew. 
They had merely come to find him and to make sure he was still alive. Now that they knew his exact location, they had to return to the village to arrange for four more men to come back and get him. Jan allowed himself to be packed back into his snow cave, and once again, he waited in the cold and darkness for help to return. This time, it took four days. By the time the transport team arrived from Mandolin on May 4th, Jan could no longer speak. All he could do when they told him they were here to take him to Sweden was give them a trembling thumbs up. The four new arrivals cleaned Jan up and wrapped him in a sleeping bag. They then strapped him to a sled, which they roped to their waists, and set out on skis down the Mandalen Valley. Like the others before it, this segment of Jan's journey was fraught with disaster. The men encountered Nazi convoys and had to take detours, which caused lengthy delays. Just like Marius and the team of rescuers from Furuflaten, they were forced to leave Jan on his own while they put in appearances back home. And once again, this led to multiple missed connections. All told, Jan stayed in his third hiding place, a roofless shelter between two rocks exposed to the mountain air for six more days. Meanwhile, his story spread across the valley. Norwegian patriots were distraught that their fellow countrymen was stranded in the snow and dying. And through a complex network of secret connections, the people of Mandalin Valley united to make a plan. There was a hidden cave in the mountain wall 200 feet above the Mandalin River. The entrance was covered in brush, making it virtually invisible to outsiders. Only people who had grown up in the area knew it was there. Among them was 43-year-old Aslak Fosvol, a member of the indigenous Sami tribe who lived in Mandalin and had been working with Marius to rescue Jan since day one. Aslak and his fellow conspirators felt that the cave would be an ideal shelter for Jan until they could figure out a way to get past the Nazis along the border. Aslak coordinated the efforts of his family and neighbors to provide everything the soldier might need. Several villagers pitched in to build a bed in the cave out of birch branches and hay. Aslak's sister wove traditional wool blankets to cover the bed and Jan himself. Then, on May 11th, Six days after his previous journey, four more men from Mandolin arrived at Jan's open-air hiding place. As they fed and warmed him, they spoke happily of the cave, the wool blankets, and the mattress he would have. Jan attempted a smile, but the truth was he was closer to death now than any of them imagined. It had been almost six weeks since the home was sunk, and all Jan's companions were killed. During that time, he had lived through a gunshot wound, an avalanche, an amputation, multiple blizzards, severe frostbite, starvation, and being buried alive in snow. But the one thing he had not yet done was lose hope. Not until now. And this was the greatest threat of all to his survival. Coming up, we'll learn how Jan's hope was revived and how a last-minute rescue in a reindeer-drawn sled took him through Nazi territory to freedom. Now back to the story. 
On May 11, 1943, four men from the town of Mandalin, Norway, trekked into the mountains to the place where Jan Balsrud had been sheltered for six days. Jan was closer to death than ever, not just physically, but mentally. After nearly six weeks on the run, he was losing hope. Jan's dwindling spirits could be attributed to multiple factors. Severe cold, constant pain, or the fact that so many rescue efforts had failed. However, there may have also been a more insidious threat at work, one that regular people experience every day. Jan was lonely. For more than 40 days, he'd had almost no human contact. And according to psychologist Dr. Sarita Robinson, that may have been the single greatest menace to his survival. Robinson writes, Loneliness can be damaging to both our mental and physical health. Socially isolated people are less able to deal with stressful situations. They're also more likely to feel depressed. The impacts of social isolation become worse when people are placed in physically isolating environments. It's hard to imagine a more remote location than a rock wall above the Arctic Circle. And it's easy to see why Jan lost the desire to be moved to yet another hideout. But the men from Mondolin wanted to help him reach his destination, and they were determined to take him all the way this time. Their first step was to transfer Jan to a hidden cave near the village. Just like his previous rescuers, they strapped him to a sled and attached it to themselves with ropes. Then they began their treacherous descent. The journey took approximately five hours. For much of the way, Jan had to be held upright in a vertical position as the men lowered him down the mountain. This caused him blinding pain as the blood rushed to his infected feet and legs. Worse, the pain reminded him of all the ordeals he'd been through before and the fact that each time he'd been disappointed. He didn't want to try anymore. Despite Jan's despondency, however, his protectors managed to get him to the cave. And once he was there, he couldn't help feeling relieved. He was safe and warm for the first time in weeks. He even had fresh air and a bit of daylight, yet he was well protected from the elements. It was the best situation he'd had since leaving Hanna and Marius's hayloft more than two weeks before. The next day, Jan had another uplifting moment when 43-year-old Aslak Fosvol made the two-hour trek from the village to meet him. It must have been deeply moving for Jan to see this man, who had been working secretly on his behalf for weeks. And if so, the feeling was mutual. Aslak brought Jan clean clothes and food. He also brought something Jan needed more desperately than he realized. Companionship. Discussing books, magazines, and current events, the two men struck up a friendship that would last the rest of their lives. With good conversation, sustenance, and shelter, Jan's spirits improved rapidly. And after a few days in the cave, he gained the strength to do something he'd been putting off for weeks. His feet were still in horrible condition. Amputating his two toes hadn't stopped the infection from spreading. So Jan asked one of the villagers to bring him a knife. And once he received it, 
he took on the grueling task of removing seven more of his toes. After this horrific task, Jan seemed at last to be on the path to healing, and the improvement happened just in time. The evening of May 28th, Jan heard a crowd approaching. His friend Aslak entered, along with four other men who had helped Jan at various stages of his journey. They told Jan that an opportunity had finally come for him to escape. Jan didn't exactly leap with joy over this announcement. Previous attempts to ferry him to Sweden had ended in misery, and he was reluctant to try again. However, his friends pointed out that the time for rescue was growing short. The snow was melting, and with it, Jan's chances for transportation to Sweden were fading away. So Jan bravely agreed. Once again, he let himself be lifted onto a sled and tied down. He endured the grueling journey without letting on how much pain he was in. After several hours, the men came to a stop in the mountains at an encampment of the semi-nomadic Sami people. This is where Jan would meet his final team of rescuers. Samis are the only remaining indigenous tribe in northern Europe. For thousands of years, they've lived in the regions now known as Norway, Sweden, Finland, and Russia. They speak their own language and thrive by herding reindeer. Jan's new friend Aslak was Sami, and many of his fellow villagers were either related to or friends with members of the tribe. As a result, they had managed to work out a deal with some of the herders to help sneak Jan across the border. Early the next morning, Jan said goodbye to his mandolin friends. Then, two Sami men, Aslak and Per Tomas Ball, dressed Jan in their traditional bright-colored clothing. They placed him in a long, narrow sled called a pulk. Per harnessed the sled to the fastest pair of reindeer in the herd. Then he climbed in with Jan and cracked his whip. Using the reindeer herd for cover, the Samis took Jan down from the mountain. They detoured around an area rife with Nazis. Then, at last, they reached a plateau overlooking the border. After almost two months in flight, Jan could see freedom before him. Per guided the pulk from the plateau into the valley that led to the Swedish border. Only a few miles remained. The Sami urged the reindeer onward. Then... Gunshots. Straining to look back, Jan saw Nazi soldiers descending from a nearby guard station on skis. They fired on the sled as they sped across the snow, bearing down on Jan and Purr with alarming speed. Purr whipped the reindeer onward. Jan could see the Swedish border just a few thousand yards away. The Nazis skied after them at breakneck speed, firing on Jan and his rescuer. For a moment, it seemed they might catch up. But then... Her whipped the sled onto a frozen lake. The German skiers weren't skilled enough to follow them across the ice. As they fell back, stranded on the snow, the reindeer pulled Jan across the border to freedom. Snow blindness, gangrene, avalanche, Nazi attack. Jan Balsrud had experienced more disaster scenarios in two months than most people face in a lifetime. 
and with the help of a small army of loyal Norwegians, all of whom risked their lives to save his, he was sledding on Swedish snow at last. This was not the end of his adventures. It was a new beginning. Balsred spent six months recuperating at a hospital in northern Sweden. He put on weight and learned how to walk without the balancing aid of his toes. He thought continually of the kind deeds people had done him in Norway, and he finally decided how he wanted to repay them. In early 1944, Jan went back to the Shetland Islands, the Scottish lands where he had learned the art of sabotage. He dedicated himself to the task of training other Allied soldiers, giving them the knowledge and skills they needed to win the war. On May 7, 1945, that vision became a reality. As Germany officially capitulated to the Allies, Jan returned home to witness his country's liberation. He settled in the capital city of Oslo for a time. The pain in his feet never left him, however, and eventually he resettled in Tenerife, the largest city of the Canary Islands, to avoid the cold. He married, had a daughter, and grew oranges. For many years, it was as if his trials above the Arctic Circle had never happened. However, just before he died on December 30th, 1988, Jan Balsrud requested that his ashes be taken to Mandalin and buried beside his friend, Aslak Fosvol. He insisted that he not be remembered as a champion, saying that the real heroes were the many Norwegians who risked their lives to help him survive. Thanks for listening to Survival. This was our last episode before we go on hiatus, but if you want more stories like this, check out ParCast's other shows like Hostage, Natural Disasters, and Espionage. You can find all episodes of Survival and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Survival for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Survival on Spotify, just open the app and type Survival in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Survival was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studio original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Dick Schroeder. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Survival was written by Megan Dane with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and stars Irma Blanco and Tim Johnson. 